Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day, welcome to Better Make It Quick. I'm Oshie Gensberg. This is Wolfie. Hey, Wolfie. Hey, Dad. Oh, that's excellent. Wolf's holding Bunny right now. We had a good afternoon at the park uh, when Wolf was a monster chasing me all over the place. I was expecting a relaxing afternoon, but no. I spent the whole time just... That guy running everywhere chasing me. I just couldn't relax, but we got home okay. Uh, he had some good dinner, and um, you're not here to hear about Wolf's Afternoon. You're here because you'd like to know about Hamish McDonald. Uh, Hamish McDonald is one of Australia's most trusted and respected broadcast journalists and news presenters. He's extraordinary. He's worked for international news organisations such as Channel 4 in the UK, Al Jazeera, ABC in America, and, uh, oh, yeah, Network 10. Network 10 in Australia, where I work sometimes. Just before I'd spoken with Hamish, I had interviewed Gladys Berejiklian, who was the uh, Premier of New South Wales at the time. I found it quite challenging to interview someone who has very different beliefs to me. But for Hamish, he does that for a living. And I wanted to know how he does it. It is a profession, right? And if you're doing it you know, for sort of journalistic purpose, you do train yourself to to not think about it through that lens. You know, I don't come to every interview thinking where this person sits in contrast uh, or relation to my own views. You just take them where they're at Mm. and interrogate that. And that's a different thing and that requires something different from you as an individual. Yeah. And that's something that for me actually I find comes quite naturally because I'm not... I wouldn't say I'm a strongly ideological person and I am not sort of strongly minded politically or anything like that. So it's not that hard for me, but I guess it's something that when you work at it over the span of a career, it becomes like second nature. And so every person that you go into interview, particularly when they're politicians, you tend to approach it in a pretty, actually a pretty similar way. Yeah. You know, what are their positions on X, Y, and Z? And what do I need to understand? What do I need to help the listener or the, the viewer understand about this? Or 
what needs to be challenged, where are there gaps in the argument. Does it help for you to understand where they come from to try to figure out why they believe so strongly in this thing? As in where they come from individually? Yeah, because yeah, we I mean, all, no matter who they are, they're people that get up in the morning, take a poo, use the big flush, wipe their butt, hopefully in a different order than that, um, you know, and then have their reasons and their, their things that formed them so that when a decision comes their way, they immediately go, yes or no, because that's just who they were when they arrived in this office. Yeah, I think it's not always something that forms part of an interview that you do when, when it's a political interview, but it's something that I always want to know is mm. what's their backstory? Yeah. How did they come to this space? You know, most people have a life before politics. Some uh, are sort of political players from the time they finish university or even while they're at university, but the bulk of them have careers or have had experiences that are that are beyond what's in the public domain. Mm. And so I make a fair amount of effort to try and have some knowledge of that. I think you can also always get something out of it, particularly where you get politicians stuck on a talking point. You know, it's often really helpful, I find, to know something else about them because you can come at things from a different direction. Uh, and that's certainly something that we've been working on a lot this year. You know, the new show is actually doing a lot more of that background prep with people to understand not just what are their positions on things but how they arrived there. And I'm grateful you do that because we are so awfully stagnant on so many things that require such enormous and immediate action if we just brick wall talking points at each other that we've just heard seven times that day during the news cycle, it's like, well, we are just wasting everybody's time and taxpayers' money by having an hour of television that says exactly the same 20 words you've said six times in front of a camera today. So please, sir, or please, ma'am, <laughs> can we get to this? And I think that's, that's super, super, super important. I think the reality is that politicians themselves probably don't really want to be wheeling out talking points as individuals. I don't think that's what they mm. want. I think, I think most people are there because they're engaged with the ideas wherever they sit on the political spectrum and they're looking to advance them. Yeah. You know, there's something about the structure of the political game that that exists whereby talking points have come to dominate. But I think if you if you do the work to understand what it is they're doing and why they're doing it, it is, I think, more possible to encourage them away from the talking points and into an engagement of ideas or a contest of ideas. And I, I, do, I do have the sense that that's what we as a community want more than anything. It's to understand. Mm. We may not say that we want to, but I think most people are pretty reasonable. And if you can understand where someone's coming from, even if you don't agree with the position they arrive at, you might, be, you might come away from it a bit less enraged. I would like to talk to you about that part. Most people are pretty reasonable because... I feel... Well, I, I hope we are. I don't, I I don't have any conclusive I believe, evidence. I believe we are. I would feel... And, you know, it all comes back, comes back to Magda Jabansky, actually. Oh, yeah. When she said 64% of Australia voted yes for the marriage equality vote, she said, that's Australia. That's the majority. That's 64% of people who've gone, you know what? I have enough emotional intelligence to understand that something that's super important for someone else and at the, at the very base of it, something that's super important for someone else that, you know, I can see that I, you know, they really want this. Does it affect me too much? No. Great. Take it. Or, you know, people inside that majority go, of course I want this. It's super important that we all get treated as equals, but that there's that majority of people who have been able to consider a, an issue such as that 
And it's essentially an, uh, an issue of empathy and an issue of compassion for someone that isn't you. Great, go for it. And that gives me extraordinary hope that I can't do maths very well. So that's this is 20, 18% of people at the, you know, or 36% of people who are outside of that. I understand they're also members of our community that we have to bring with us. But, you know, the, the, the vast amount of Australians are essentially pretty reasonable and understand, you know, consequence and choice and empathy. It was actually fascinating listening to your Gladys very clean interview because she made some observations about the way that political debate exists and how it often is the loudest voices on the edges that come to dominate the conversation. And so people that don't wholly and purely agree with those positions end up getting shouted down because they they express something that is, you know, somehow outside of those positions. And I thought that was that was interesting because often in the media we do end up with the loudest voices and the most effective voices. And I suppose, you know, as a journalist you have a responsibility to reflect the community as it is, not just as it's easiest to do. And that's sometimes a challenge because people, you know, some people are afraid to take a position in in the public domain. You know, if I were in business or if I were a host of television programs or if I were someone that worked in some space helping community groups do something, I probably would be nervous about uh, participating in a public debate because you really expose yourself. I'm sure you experienced that when you came on Q&A. There would have been a lot of people probably that agreed with you but probably a lot of people that didn't agree with you and they probably would have shouted you down. Uh, you know, you're someone that takes strong positions and you can defend them and you do it loudly and proudly and you've probably been in the media business long enough to know how to handle the blowback of that. But a lot of people, you know, that's not something necessarily that comes easy to them. And so I'm really aware of that. How do we have a public discussion? How do we have really valuable public debates in a way that both tests people on their arguments and holds them accountable where necessary, but also remains respectful and, you know, for the most part, doesn't leave people feeling like they shouldn't have participated in the discussion. It does feel as though over the last decade or so, political discussions have, I guess they got far more polarised than ever before. They're instantly heated. They lack a lot of balance. Surely, in order to get through the next 20 years, we're going to need more nuance in our discussions. I get asked a lot about being having been a foreign correspondent and doing all the sort of travel around the world and being in hotspots and all of that kind of thing. And I think it's always hard to put all of that together and have one takeout. But I think the one thing I have learned from all of the things that I've done is that generally the story is never on the edges. It's never simple. It's nearly always in the grey areas and the nuance. And I think you know, there's a lot of journalists that I look up to and think are amazing. The ones that I think do it best are the ones that can articulate the grey and the nuance in a really digestible fashion. There's a guy, Jeremy Bowen, who's the BBC's Middle East editor. He explains some of the most complex stories in the world, but he does it so beautifully and so simply. There's a guy, Chris Reason, who works for Channel 7 here in Australia. He tells all sorts of different stories about the world, about Australia, about child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, really complex, detailed stories. But he does it so simply 
when you watch it, it takes no effort to digest it or to understand it. So I think for me, yes, it is about the nuance, but it's also about how do you make it accessible. And I think I'm, I'm from a generation where, you know, we consume media a lot differently now. I think we are sort of probably digital natives. You know, I come from a weird background of having done news and done international news, but then also have worked on something like The Project. And I think particularly the experience of being at something like The Project brings a different sensibility to really complex things. I think working with comedians, for example, teaches you something very different about communication and about engaging with the audience and about understanding. You know, comedians are generally, whatever their persona is, they're generally incredibly smart, incredibly well-researched, educated people. And on top of that, they understand the value of heart and emotion and they understand, they think all the time about their audience because they're trying to make their audience laugh because they're desperate for their audience to laugh at them. And not that I go out trying to make an audience laugh, but I think working alongside comedians has made me far more acutely focused on where is the audience out here? What, what do they want to know? What are they going to connect with here? What, do they, what are they feeling? Emotions are not the only thing. I'm in the news game, but I do think human connection to story is at the heart of everything I try and do. And I think I've been guilty of it in the past with news. You, you sometimes try and tell these stories in a way that's void of that, or you don't really think about that in the telling. And so I think that's been a huge learning as well. All that stuff takes work. And the, the journalists that you've just mentioned they would have also done hours and hours and hours and in, in a career of digesting every single piece of nuance of information about this particular thing they're trying to get across in a 30-second satellite shot. Yeah. But if you have all of that information and you have retained it for a while, you can actually see it pretty clearly. Yeah. You know, it, it, there are times when, you know, we've all gone through this where you're sort of cramming for an exam and there's just so much information and, you know, you do it the night before and it, it's sort of there for a brief moment and you're just desperate to hang on to it long enough that you can actually get the exam complete. Uh, but I think if you, if you learn this stuff over time or you have these experiences over time, they still sit within your mind in a different way and you can draw on them at the right moment as and when you need them to be able to synthesise something that's very complex. Do you think that we are coming into a time now in our democratic developed world where we can no longer just kind of watch the news and expect to figure out what's going on, that we kind of have to take our vote a little more seriously and we kind of have to put the effort in and take the responsibility? Because for a long time in Australia, we've, you know, we've got away with, ah, look, you know, everything's amazing. There's plenty of money. The economy's killing. There's nothing but water and food and space and land and peace. I don't give a shit. I will think about it as I read a pamphlet from when I walk from the entrance of the primary school to the booth. Look, I, I have really, I suppose I have mixed feelings about that because in a way that's sort of the, the unique thing about Australia. Yes, we have compulsory voting, but we don't obsess about our politics. You know, most of us want a good life and we want to be around our family and our friends and to make the most of 
the incredible place that, that we live in. And, you know, there are countries where politics dominates absolutely everything and really sort of existential challenges, you know, threaten the lives that people can lead. You know, there are people that are having a really tough time in Australia, that's for sure. But I think for probably the vast majority of the country, they don't necessarily want to be thinking about politics 24-7. Is that the same thing as, as greater engagement? I don't know. I mean, I sense that probably Australians are more engaged with the big decisions and the big choices in front of us than what we're given credit for. I think the Australian audience, I think Australian voters by and large are, are far more intelligent and informed than than what the kind of reputation is and what sometimes the media can assume. You know, I've never been one to subscribe to the idea that people don't want to know or they don't care, so don't bother telling them. I've always argued for, no, let's give them the context or let's give them that complicated detail. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment with uh, Hamish McDonald. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hamish McDonald was a foreign correspondent for many years. He's travelled to so many places. He spent time in so many more countries, been with more cultures. He's done more and been to more places than anyone I've ever had on the show. And I was quite curious. Well, actually, at the time, I think I've had someone on the show from Medicine Sans Frontiers who's since been, I think, 105 countries. He did a lot. So I was curious to know, with all the different types of people that Hamish had spent time with, all the people he'd observed, what were the commonalities that he noticed? I suppose what I would observe is that I, that we do have a lot more in common than we imagine. When I was living in Yemen, I did a trip one weekend and took what I can't remember the name of one of the local airlines, but took a small flight towards Hadramouth, which is sort of in the in the middle of the country. And the pilot was American, which was sort of a bit unusual. And there was a stop on the way. It might have I think the plane may have flown to Aden and then up. And we got talking to the pilot during the stop because it was sort of, you know, so it was surprising to see a young Western pilot flying this plane in a domestic flight in Yemen. And he was from Montana and he explained that he was there because the pay was better for a young pilot in Yemen than it was in uh, working for an American domestic airline. And anyway, we exchanged contacts and he and his wife had those of us that were on that flight over for dinner and they were really lovely 
They were devout Christians. They were Fox News viewers and they were there with their young kids and it seemed a really surprising place for them to come and to be and I sort of inquired with them about that and how their own sort of personal backgrounds fit in a place like Yemen. And, you know, they just kept talking over and over and over again about how this was a great place for a family and how there was a lot of respect for women and, uh, you know, culturally this sort of that's another debate about whether uh, <laughs> women are respected in Yemen. But this was, their, this was their reflection on it. And there was a lot of emphasis on family and that it was a relatively sort of simple, frugal, pious existence that sat really comfortably with them. And I think that's always sort of stayed with me. I, I remember being in Libya during the sort of revolution and then what turned into a war really in the lead up to Gaddafi being killed and riding along in one of these sort of converted pickup trucks that had been turned into a, you know, weaponized vehicle and sitting in the back with some of these young fighters and they were... I think now you'd probably call them Islamist fighters, but they were sort of just, you know, young revolutionaries at that moment. And they obviously had these vehicles souped up with heavy weaponry, but they also had huge sound systems. And I, I remember looking in through the sort of window at the back of the cab and I was sitting on the back trailer with a few of the others and we were doing some filming with them. And I looked through and this, one of these young guys with the kind of kafir scarf around his neck was reading the Quran, so sort of reading the verses, and they were all very religious. But then they were absolutely blasting Eminem out of the sound system. And they all looked very cool and kind of hipster, I guess. And I guess that's another observation I would make is that there's sort of more in common than we imagine. These guys sort of felt they were doing something brave and cool and, you know, could in their own minds very happily be reading the Quran and listening to Eminem, you know, smoking a cigarette at the same time. I do think that there is a lot more in common uh, across the borders than, than what we probably would ever like to, to think. They just want somewhere safe to sleep at night. They want their kids to do a little bit better than they do and they want a couple of meals every day. Yeah, and they, you know, to be honest, they probably want to be cool. They want to do something that is meaningful. It, it was a really, it was a really formative experience for me in terms of understanding how and why all of these sort of young guys from all over the world were attracted to these, you know, crazy movements in the Middle East, you know, to go and sort of sign up and be part of something. But I think when you understand the kind of sense of dislocation, there's very kind of complex factors at play, but there was this, you know, something about the, these awful videos and the messaging was appealing and connecting with them. I met a lot of the young guys in Britain that sort of went off to, to Syria ultimately and, uh, you know, really sort of dislocated societally and then clearly saw something that they could connect with. Yes, the, uh, the wanting to belong and wanting to feel like you have a place will take you to extreme spots if you don't have that at home, really, won't it? With, with disastrous consequences. Yeah. But I, I don't know if that really answers your question about what connects all these people in different places, but, but I do think there's a lot more that's similar than there is that's different. 
Hamish McDonald is a truly fantastic human being. We're lucky to have him on air in our country. He's just so measured and thoughtful, intelligent. If you want to hear that full conversation. Dad. Yes, Wolf, if you want to hear the full conversation, what episode do they need to go to? Three five AP. That's right, three hundred and twenty-eight. Uh, you can scroll back and find out. Hamish is now a host on the project on Network Ten. You can see him most nights on air in Australia. Thanks for being a part of the show. On Friday night, come and see us at the Factory Theatre. We are uh, on stage around sevenish. Uh, it's a great fun show. Nighttime News Network National Nightly News NTNN NNN. Come and see the show. Tickets are in the show notes. Uh, tickets for on sale right now for the Melbourne gigs as well. Come be a part of it. It was super fun last week. It's going to be super fun this week. Thanks for being a part of the show. Thanks, Andy, for cutting this together, and thank you for listening. I'll see you on Friday. Can you say goodbye, Wolf? Goodbye. <laughs> Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.